Welcome to Rocking Our Prize. So today I want to know what advances gender equality, what erodes discriminatory laws that curb women's economic autonomy and trap them in dependent, abusive relationships, or reinforce their submissive status. Laurel Weldon, Professor of Political Science at Simon Fraser University, is a world-leading expert on the impact of women's movements. She wrote one of the most cited gender articles of the past decade on how strong independent organising is critical to comprehensive policies on gender-based violence. Now she's back again with a big hitter. This time is on how women's organising impacts women's economic rights. Laurel, welcome. <laughs> Thank you, Alice. Okay, so... To set the scene, give me your top-line finding. Uh, well, in this paper, which is a work in progress, yes. um, the, the main thing that we find here is that women's autonomous organizing is associated with greater economic empowerment for women. Um, so that's a key thing that we're, that we're trying to show. Okay, so the power of women's movements. And exactly. what might explain their results? How, how do women's mm-hmm. movements achieve those ends? Well, the relationship that we're showing here is just, in some ways, the same relationship that we've been showing in the work that you referenced yep. with Malatun, as well as some earlier work that I did on violence against women, which is that women's movements um, place women's uh, priorities on the public agenda. Yes. They raise p- public profile of these issues. They name the issues. These issues don't exist until feminists name them. So take violence against women, for example. Um, that's, an, that's a problem that people had not really been talking about because it was not a concept. So that's an important part of this that some people have missed. Um, Similarly, in this paper on economic empowerment, where there are ways that um, women's uh, economic empowerment is is fundamentally a feminist concept, right? The distinctive issues that come um, from women's diverse experiences are named by them in their collective autonomy. Um, and we wouldn't know about some of these things. I mean, these are some of the things that we were just talking about, yeah. um, about uh, um, sort of economic issues that people don't even, that people take for granted now. Social reproduction, like lots of different concepts. Um, the ways patriarchy and uh, um, uh, male, male domination and capitalism have gone together. These are things that, you know, people illuminated um, by talking about how they came together in their personal experiences and their lived experiences. Um, and these are new concepts, and they've resulted in new analyses and new political foci that came out of organized feminism. Okay, so now let's drill down into the method. So the top line finding is women's movements improve uh, laws uh, discriminating against women because they're putting these issues on the agenda. So you create this... And not just laws. Not just laws. Mm -hmm. So you create this phenomenal phenomenal cross-national data set and then you explore the relationship between women's organizing now first of all before we talk about the data set i want to ask about the underlying approach of doing these cross-national regressions why should i care about global average effects because i actually did a podcast on this last week where we looked at at cross-national regressions looking at the relationship between Mm -hmm. democracy and growth Mm -hmm. and there my question is Suppose I'm in Cambodia, uh, where there is huge uh, violence against women and the police, the governments do very little about it. Mm-hmm. If I want to know how to change things in Cambodia, mm-hmm. why does it help me to know that on average, mm-hmm. women's mobilizing get results? Is that like how, you know, how like, if, wouldn't I, isn't it better for me? I guess I don't think of it that way. Okay, in the following sense that it's fundamentally, the correlational finding is a little bit about the, you know, you might summarize it. Um, as being, it's, it's capturing, it's assuming a kind of causal 
homogeneity and its mm. sort of method. Um, but it's not, uh, none of the research that we've ever done, uh, that I've ever done, has just ever been about finding correlations. There's always detailed qualitative sure. work that underlies it as well that shows the connection between cause and effect. Yes. And so the reason that you should care about it in Cambodia is because what it's saying is that around the world, if you want to learn from the experiences of women everywhere, what we found is that the cause here is women's organizing and the effect is changing uh, laws, policies, and attitudes and norms on violence against women. So the reason you should pay attention to it is because it's an important causal relationship that you might want to take into account. Um, and there's no reason to think, and the question would be, why is Cambodia different? Why do you think that women's organizing wouldn't have this effect? Now, there might be other things, right? Mm. Women's organizing might not be the answer in Cambodia. Mm. There might be other pathways to the yeah. same place. Um, you know, to say that something causes it doesn't mean it's the only cause, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> or the only possible pathway to getting there. Um, so I think the, the sort of... Um, you know, the question of what are the implications for Cambodia from a global study is a complicated question. But I think the idea that, um, you know, uh, you're going to ignore the results of this if you really care about change are kind of short-sighted, right? So, like, this is like saying, I have cancer, um, but I'm an individual, and everything might not work out for me, so I'm going to ignore all the cancer research because it's not about me particularly, which is kind of goofy, right? I mean, it might be that you are, you know, 75, you know, their life expectancy is 2 to 10 years, and maybe you'll live for 12, or maybe you'll live for 1, or maybe, you know, but I mean, the whole, like, it would be crazy to say, I'm going to ignore all the medical research because it's not about me. It's about okay. average findings. I will I mean, see it's to not that. crazy to say, it is about average finding and I'm not an average and I'm not the average I'm just yeah, mean, yeah. how does this apply to me is a good question but it's not the same the saying it's not important okay I, I'm implicated okay my next question is so you create a variable for feminist mobilization at five different points of time and I think one really important part of your data set is whereas others have counted the number of women's organizations you say mm, that might not be terribly helpful because these could just be briefcase NGOs that exist on paper. What we really need to understand is the strength and the autonomy of a women's movement in each country. Can you, can you explain why it's important to understand both aspects, strength yeah, and, and autonomy? I would characterize the, the, the kind of line that we're taking on. I wouldn't say that we're dismissing organizations because they might be briefcase organizations, although that certainly mm. um, is one thing that some people say. Um, but I think the more important way that we are thinking about it is, well, first of all, there's a broad agreement in people who study um, women's protests in one hand and social movements on the other mm. that, you, that, that um, we can't... Uh, collapse the study of social movements into the study of a single organization or into the study of a of a single formal organization, mm. right? So we're talking about networks of activists, yes, fuzzy boundaries. Yeah. Um, it's really ideas in the political science literature that are thought of as defining political or social movements. Mm. And if you're talking about ideas defining the boundaries, then organizations are one manifestation of ideas, yes. but they're certainly not the only one. Sure. And I bet that you don't belong to a lot of feminist organizations that you support. No, any no, kind of no, 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 you're not no, a member, no. You know, but you support them or you feel yeah, like you're part sure. of the feminist movement. But yeah. if I asked you, where's your feminist card, that would be a ludicrous question, right? Exactly. So that's what we're trying to get that's at. That's a great that example. The, yeah. um, that there's not a feminist card. When you yes. belong to a social movement, mm. when you're an environmentalist, mm. when you're um, somebody who's fighting against global capitalism, you don't have an anti-capitalism card, right? You have what you have is your activist integrity, mm. you have your commitments, you have your ideas. Yes. Your ideas and your personal commitments mm. are your Absolutely. Mm. So um, how do we get at that in practice, right? If we want to study movements, 
That's what we want to know. Yes. Who's supporting and counting themselves as part of this? Yes. Um, now that is partly, organizations are not irrelevant for that. You want to know about them, but you want to have them in context. So that's really what we're trying to do. Um, so the, you know, the recent stuff on women's protest too has been pointing out that like women's protest is not, there's a kind of stereotype that all the protest is like 1960s social movements in the US where what we're going to have is sort of street protests with signs or t-shirts mm. and petitions. Mm. And those are certainly important elements of mm. social movement um, yes. tactics, yes. particularly in the US. But, but protest happens lots of places. It happens yes. in prisons. It happens in private homes. It happens online. It happens in lots of different places. Mm. So we're really trying to encompass the diversity of tactics um, which is actually the strength of social movements, right? They're so interesting to study and fun to watch because they're so creative. You never yeah. know what they're going to yeah, do next. Yeah. Um, and uh, that's exciting, right? But, I mean, that's also what you have to take into account when you're trying to look at the political power of social movements is to take this diversity of tactics into account. So that's what we try to do in our database is include, is be very open methodologically. As like Amy was saying today in the introduction mm. to the panel, oh, that, yeah. that, um, that you know, a key thing about this is that the, the, the measure, the measurement is kind of in some ways fundamentally qualitative. Right? Yeah, this approach. is really groundbreaking. It's trying yes. to, to use a, these kinds of qualitative insights in a larger project. So I'm totally with you. Now, you focus on strength and autonomy of the women's movement mm -hmm. in each country. Why, why both those aspects in particular? Well, autonomy is important going way back, right, mm -hmm. for women's movements because it's what allows um, movements to set their own priorities. Yes. Autonomy here is organizational autonomy, or what I've sometimes said, autonomy in the feminist sense. Mm. It's autonomy from male-dominated organizations. Mm. So sometimes when people hear autonomy, they hear that old Marxist state theory um, debate about like the autonomy from the state. That's not really what we're talking about. We're talking right. about autonomy in the feminist sense. That is, autonomy from male-dominated organizations. So this means that you will necessarily... Does that mean that you have to exclude trade unions? No, I don't think okay. it means you have to exclude trade unions. The mm. question is whether they're feminist trade unions right. or not. Right, okay. Um, and, mo and historically, trade unions have not always been Yeah, feminist. no, for sure. Um, those, that's changing. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's yeah. e yeah. the kind of... In the past, what used to be an easy mm. feminist critique of mm. some trade unions anyway isn't easy anymore. Mm. I mean, and, and, and trade unions are complicated. Okay. But, but the short answer is trade unions are complicated, mm. but also it does not exclude uh, trade unions necessarily. It doesn't exclude anything insofar as... Right, it depends like, what they're like in situ. So how do you construct your data? Is this cross-national qualitative comparison? So you rely on this huge... Yeah, tell me how you construct your data. Based. So the way we have done this um, really basically starting even with my first book, yes. is to kind of have each country, you know, qualitatively, you're trying to understand what's happening with the women's movement in that country. Yes. So you're starting with trying to build a narrative about mm -hmm. what's happening. Mm -hmm. um, and so you're, you're gathering all the data you can. So that includes things on numbers of organizations. If there's surveys out there, you use that. Newspaper articles, um, reports of protests, um, you know, uh, if feminists are having policy symposia and pre preparing materials, we would get those. Um, we would take their reports, um, movement documents. So, uh, you know, everything that we can get our hands on, right? Wow. Uh, and, and try to put together. And sometimes it's a lot and sometimes it's a little. It really depends. Yeah. Um, uh, but, That's incredibly you know, in-depth, yeah. detailed work. And trying to put that together and then have... So for each uh, country, we have these little books um, that s assemble 
all of this information. No, some, some, some countries are really well studied, actually. Some countries yeah. have tons and tons yeah, of fantastic sure. yeah. uh, feminist scholarship on the women's movement that it's very easy to move to use on women's movements, I should say, um, and, and articulate, you know, you, you can track it because there's so much. Yes. And it would be reinventing the wheel to go yeah, there and do that again. Sure. I mean, to the point of just when you're really basically wanting to say, okay, when did this movement start? Um, when did these movements start? Uh, you know, when did they become more influential? Uh, when did they, were they autonomous or not? Some of these questions are hard to get the answer to, but some are not. So, but okay, so you have this incredibly rich, well, very, very, in very enrichness across different countries. But how do you standardize and create a spectrum of strength and autonomy for different countries? Mm-hmm. Like, because strength might look like autonomy might be a different kind of autonomy in different yeah, places. It's very, how it's do you very do that? Tricky. I mean, yeah. it's been very, that's been hard, although I do think we've come to a good place with this current. Um, you know, we've coding guidelines and, you know, so if you see this, this is, you know, so international mm-hmm. attention is something, you know, the strongest movements are being cited as models in other countries, yes. right? Like neighboring countries are saying, oh, I want to do what they're doing and wherever, you know, or I want to use your method or your mm-hmm. ideas are getting out there because you're so influential and successful that everyone's paying attention to yes. you. Now, of course, this is just an example of some of the nuance we've had to develop in our mm-hmm. coding. So when you say international um, attention is important for strength, what you mean there is that feminist movements are getting international attention because of the great things they're doing. Mm-hmm. What you don't mean is that international groups are coming to highlight the bad things that are happening in your country because you're a bastion of backwardness. Right. right? So like, I mean, now we can say, okay, that doesn't count as strength, but the first thing does. But that's something that we had to develop by going through the coding of these movements and saying, okay, international attention is a sign of strength and then wait what do you mean by that um well that's just one example right okay of how we so so internet like the, so there's strong movements and then there's the strongest movements okay um you know so can you command do you command the attention of public officials for example now not policy right yeah <laughs> um but can you command public attention do newspapers report on what you're doing um and then there's there's a whole bunch of other questions that come into that how, what counts as commanding attention how much attention do you have to command for that to be important um, and so on. But is there a possibility that when you're trying to code it, people might be biased by the policy outcome? Because you're trying to track the relationship yeah. between the campaigning and the policy outcome. Mm-hmm. And is it a possibility that in countries yeah. where we know the pos- pol- uh, policy outcome mm-hmm. is positive, yeah. that we look more positively on that feminist activism that and think, yeah, they happens. were so active. That definitely happens, and it's a big challenge in a re- as a research team leader um, when you have you know, graduate students and undergraduates mm. and even other scholars looking at things that to, to be very strict um, yes. about saying you may not say like if you are saying so I don't actually have the, the researchers um, say whether the movement is strong or not yeah. they make the paper Right. They make the and then the the coding relies on specific features of the movement. It doesn't rely on whether now if people in the literature generally see the movement as strong, um, we make a note of that. Mm. But then the question is, why do they see it as strong? And yes. if they say it's strong because it changed the policy, then we can't use it. No, of course. So I mean, of course, you're you know that doesn't get at your point about like well maybe some people are saying that it's strong. They think it's strong because policy changed. And people make this assumption, and it turns out not to have been a bad assumption really. In some no, ways, no, sure. You know, but right. people make this kind of observation yeah. that if you know. If you have powerful um, guarantees in law, that it must yeah. be the case yeah. that it's a strong feminist yeah. movement. Or and then sometimes people are just kind of oblivious about that. But the so I mean that's a great point that in general the kind of received wisdom about where things are strong or not strong. Um, 
you know, uh, reflect, may reflect this broader view. And I think that we've really pushed hard on this project not to be vulnerable mm. to that. You know, mm. it's always hard to eliminate all bias, and I don't want to yeah. pretend that we no, have. No, sure. But to the extent that we've tried to be extremely evidence-based yeah. in our coding. So, you know, if there's like, you know, we have a set, I would say a disjunctive set of conditions that will produce our codings of strong or very strong. Uh, we do have, you know, survey um, data, which is has its own issues, um, some of which we talked about today in the panel, um, you know, about uh, how do, you know, how much confidence do you have in the women's movement? What do you think about gender equality, like general public opinion? Now, one of the things I think our research is going to show, and one of the things that's interesting about separating out things like survey data from actual organizations, is that survey data lags yes. um, actual strength. Right, so people talk about how at the height of the civil rights movement, the majority of people didn't support it in yes, the US, absolutely, right? Absolutely. Um, but later they do. Yes. Right? So, I mean, that's because the movement was strong and then later people supported it. So there's a little bit of lag mm. um, if you're looking at things like public support. But it does tell you that something's going on when you can see uh, various public opinion surveys saying, I have a lot of confidence in the women's movement, or um, you know, people have to respond. There's a response. Uh, repressing a movement actually is a sign that you feel threatened by it. Mm, yeah, degree, of course, right. right. Uh, you don't bother repressing things that you view as yeah, of course. Irrelevant. Why bother? Why bother? Um, so uh, anyway, so there's there's lots of different ways of thinking about um, responsiveness that are based on actual things that people do and say. You know, or it is, does come include things like organizations, surveys, large protests. If there are zillions of people in the street. Um, you, you know, you, you've got to pay attention to that, right? It's probably not just somebody saying, oh, movements are mattering because they're strong. Well, they probably also are strong because there's millions of people in the street. So it's a long answer to a very good question. I'm with you. Okay. Mm -hmm. No, I was just thinking of the, there was this uh, right to information campaign in India and a lot of people, so tangent, and a lot of the NGOs, civil society claim credit for it. Uh, but, you know, that may not have been the cause of why when India won the right, right. to information yeah. campaign, no, there was going to have been other things yeah. going on, uh, even though sort of civil society claimed victory. Anyway, tangent. No, but I want to say that. I like that tangent, actually, because I think oh. that from a research perspective, um, this is another kind of challenge yes. when, you know, activists, politicians, everybody wants to claim. Yeah, that They're for the sure. people who are behind mm -hmm. a particular view. And we have a strong sense. I mean, people who do a lot of qualitative work know how to handle this. But um, I think sometimes there's a real tendency to come back and say, oh, well, so-and-so says that they, they did this. They were the prime movers mm. behind this legislation. Mm. Um, and, you know, activist groups often are trying to justify themselves. Because they want to secure they, funding. Yeah. They've got financial... So, but, I mean, but, yeah. I mean, but, but, so if they, but if they tell you we weren't behind this, then you really know something. <laughs> and, I mean, you, you, again, you can try to look at tracing what happened, you know. Um, well, where did the idea come from? In some cases, it's very clear. So, for example, in Canada on violence against women, the, the National Association for Women in the Law wrote the legislation. I mean, they wrote the legislation. So, I mean, you know, you can say, oh, the well, maybe gut is that, right? It. Yeah, I mean, sometimes really. And other times um, you say, well, they got this idea from these other activists. How do you know? Because they faxed the model legislation over, which is crossed out. The jurisdiction is crossed out. They put the new jurisdiction in and they took it to the parliament and the parliament passed it. So it's a very clear. So, I mean, yeah, while sure. it can be very tricky, yeah. there's some times when it's really not tricky. Okay. I'm with you. Right. So that's the... Independent variable. Now let's look at the dependent variables. And, and you have two really here. So the first dependent variable that you look at is the gender inequality index. So that's maternal mortality ratio, adolescent fertility rate, percentage of female seats in national parliaments, levels of education, and labor force participation. What do you find in looking at that? 
Well, we find that there's a uh, relationship between mm. higher levels of feminist mobilization mm. and lower levels of inequality. Mm. And really, we're not trying to um, stake our project on that particular okay. finding. Mm. It's more of an introductory finding. Oh, right. Like, okay. So just sort of a setting the stage because, um, you know, so the, in terms of saying, look, Sure, there's a relationship between actual inequality of various kinds. And this is mm. not a great, like, there are lots of things you could look at. You yes. don't have to look at the IMF. No, no, sure. Gender equality mm. measure, right? There are problems with it. Yeah. I mean, in the sense of, like, does it include, you know, mm. does it include various mm. things? Does it include rates of violence? There's lots of things mm. that are yeah, not included. Yeah. But it summarizes yeah. a wide range yeah, of things. Yeah, and yeah. if you just want a, a kind of quick and dirty sense of, What's the relationship between feminist movements? Because listen, there's an, so there are, are current scholars who are saying that feminist movements are, in, in spite of their activities, mm. inequality is increasing. Mm-hmm. That there's a, a, an effort to kind of blame increasing inequality on feminist movements. So I think the first thing to say is, okay, um, let's, let's start with some actual data and look at what we think is going on. Yes. If feminist movements were increasing inequality, one would not expect this correlation, right? Right. So that's kind of where we're starting. We're just starting to say, those people who are trying to blame mm. identity politics mm. or inequality or all other kinds of things on feminist movements... This, they would not expect to see a strong relationship between more feminist mobilization and reduced inequality. So it's more of a ground clearing than like this is what we're going to hang our hats on type of thing. But may I ask a question? Oh, of course. So I can understand that you might wish to explore the, relation, explore the impact of women's organization on gender inequalities broadly so that we can compare across countries. But aren't there two possibilities? So tell me, I'm sure I'm wrong, but tell me these two possibilities. One is that in looking, using a composite index, as mm. whether it's IMF or whatever, mm. is it not possible that countries may do very well in some aspects, but not others? Of course. That's in one fact, thing. In fact, not only do they, we know they do. That's what my last yeah. book showed. And so, and then, <laughs> yeah, so then following on from lo- logics of gender justice, feminist campaigns may have targeted some issues, but not others. So perhaps in Latin America in the 1980s and 1990s, with the economic crisis, there was a huge increase in female labor force participation in order to provide for their families. Now, this after democratization, when women only got a very low percentage of seats in Argentina and other Latin American countries, the women's movement pushed for more women in political, uh, political representation in Latin America, and they got gender quotas. And that led to a big increase in women in politics. So both aspects of that IMF gender inequality index are increasing, but only one of them, the political one, is likely due to feminist mobilization. So I wonder... The, the economic one is likely triggered by the crisis. Mm-hmm. So I wonder, isn't there a risk that clustering all of these different dimensions of gender inequality might cloud our understanding of the precise impact oh, of gender mobilization? Not only is there a risk, it almost certainly does. Okay. Yeah, but that's not what we're after doing. So, okay. I mean, that's not what the project is about. Okay. That, that, that part of the project, and this is a part about work in progress, is trying to figure out, making clear what you think you're doing. Mm-hmm. And in that particular finding, as I said, it's not a find, we're not trying to show with that finding that feminist movements cause... Um, greater equality, right? I mean, so that's that's a huge, that's a global um, sort of correlational finding, and it's certainly um, not capturing all the nuanced ways that uh, movements, uh, I mean, and movements, as we know, have more impact in some sectors yes, than others, yes. um, and that's part of the whole project, was to figure out what, what, what kind of, if we think about economic areas, how do we see the impact of movements in these economic areas? Um, so, um, you know, that's part of the very possibility of that disparate impact as part of, or not disparate, but different impact across different areas is the whole reason for this project. So um, I don't um, at all 
think that that's uh, an invalid concern. I think it's a likelihood that it's not capturing, it's obscuring or not capturing those variations, but that's not the point, right? I mean, so if the, if the question was, what vary, like, what's the variation, what's the varied impact of feminism on all these different areas, then that would be a foolish way to explore it. But that's not the question. The question is saying, Feminists are taking it in the ear these days for being the handmaidens to neoliberalism and a bunch of other nonsense. Yes. And, um, you know, the point of that particular finding is to say, some people are even going so far as to say that the things that feminists are doing are making inequality worse. Gender inequality worse, yeah. If that were true, what mm. would one expect to see? Mm. One would expect to see broadly inequality increasing. Mm-hmm. But we don't. Mm-hmm. We see that feminist mobilization is associated with greater equality, not greater inequality. That's what it is. It's a negative argument right. rather than a positive argument. We're not trying to say, and this shows you mm. that feminist mobilization has the same effect on all these different areas. Couldn't be farther from the truth. That's definitely not what we're Amazing. asking. The next part of the project, so that's really kind of ground clearing. And I yes. can even leave that out. And, you know, <laughs> and I'm, who knows, maybe I will. Um, but um, but I, I think it's a useful thing yes. to remember yeah, because yeah. the other thing that people say also is feminists only affect policy and there's no um, and the broader trends mm-hmm. um, so policy doesn't matter and really feminists are focusing on passing these policies while feminist mobilization is associated with greater inequality and again there's all these other things that you could investigate but really if that were true one would expect to see feminist mobilization associated with greater inequality. Or at least that's one possibility, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Or maybe there's no relationship, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm, or something. Mm-hmm, but th- that's not the case. So mm-hmm. the question remains, what's the explanation for that relationship? Why do we see that? How do we disaggregate the impact that we're seeing here? Or if there is any impact, like what's going on? That's the project, right? No, what's going I'm with on? You. I'm totally and, with and, you. And the, the rest of the project is about specifically trying to focus on these economic areas. Yes. Um, which have not, and the legal um, entitlements. Right. And which have not been um, as prominent uh, prominently explored in the literature um, as one might want. Mm. Um, so I think, you know, if you wanted to really make the case about economic rights or economic empowerment, um, there's lots of stuff that we still need to do. And so that's what we're trying to do. In the yeah, so tell me about this session dependent variable. So you look at the impact of women's mobilization on laws and policies uh, relating to a broad range of issues. Can you talk me through those? They're more, um, these ones are really more about kind of women's economic, uh, almost employment, but women's, uh, women's kind of economic status, the yes. legal status of women in the economy. So in the book with Molotun that we just talked about, mm. The Logics of Gender Justice, mm. we found that women's movements, um, feminist mobilization strongly influences um, uh, reforms uh, to improve women's legal status. So that's not something mm. that is not. Mm. But yeah. that was looking at a set of one set of countries, and that, didn't, did not, that study didn't cover the global south as well as we'd like. Um, you know, so Africa, for example, in particular, was undercovered. And this project is very focused on extending our coverage of Africa. Which is wonderful. So, um, so we're trying to really make sure that that covers, um, that we explore some of these findings and how well are they covering Africa. What if we look at things like um, conflict, um, uh, you know, and other things that um, people think are more important in the African context that might not matter more broadly. Yes. You know, how does that affect these findings? Yes. So this is kind of where we are with this particular um, study. So this this um, project, uh, the the analysis there uses women, business, and the law yes. data set, which yeah. is a good data set from a legal perspective. Mm-hmm. From um, on trying to actually make sure you have the law right, 
Um, I mean, as far as these cross-national data sets go, they're all flawed, mm. they all have problems, mm. right? But here's one that's pretty good in terms of getting at um, the legal status, and it has... And why focus on the law rather than the... Because we know that in many of these places, the law isn't necessarily implemented Absolutely. or enforced. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So why focus on the legislation rather than the outcomes? No, we aren't. We are. We are focusing on the outcomes. Oh, I'm sorry. So the sorry. law is just one part. Oh, right. So the first part is the law, and then the second part is the proportion of women who own land. Yes, yes. And then the part after that is how many women have a bank account. Yes. Um, and so there's, there's lots of different parts of the project. The yes. law is just the... So the first thing was the bigger... So this is partly just about the way the project's yeah. evolving, right? So the first part was just to say, look, there's an association with equal- with greater equality. And then the second thing is to say, let's just look at women's legal status. Yes. Um, uh, if you take land, labor, and capital, right, the first thing is women's economic citizenship. So while it's certainly true that the law doesn't um, – ha- having a legal right doesn't mean that you have the things that you no, have a legal sure. right to um, – it's also the case that in 90% of the world's markets, there are legal barriers that pre- prevent yeah, women huge. from having uh, equal, women's equal, equal equality, right? So if you cannot have a small business because you're legally prevented from doing it, if you can't own property because no, you're it's legally absolutely... prevented from doing it, that's a problem. And how so... big, can you tell us how big is the relationship between, what is the effect, uh, in your paper you show this nicely, what is the effect, compare a country with a strong women's movement mm-hmm. and a country with a weak women's movement. How big is the difference in the final? It's pretty, I mean, I have to go back to look at our specific notes, but I think it's around um, like a five, or, I think it was 5% or 10%. I think it was 11. Yeah. I think it was like 11. Yes. Well, you read it more, you read it more <laughs> carefully, but the, but it's a substantial impact. I think, um, sm- uh, you know, significant yes. uh, in a substantive sense, uh, yeah. both in a statistically significant sense and also in a um, substantively important sense um, that, uh, you know, it makes it more likely that you are going to have some more extensive legal rights. Um, and so, you know, do legal rights mean that you're going to, to have the legal right to have a small business doesn't mean you're going to have a small business. No, sure. To have the legal right to own property doesn't mean you're going to get any property, but it does a necessary but not barrier, sufficient. Yeah, for a sure. A tremendous barrier. Yeah. And the question of implementation comes at the point when we have the rights. Yes. So, I mean, we can't be asking questions about whether laws are implemented or whether they mean something in practice if we don't even have no. them. I mean, in fact, you don't really want laws that disempower women implemented. Yeah, no, for sure. <laughs> so, no. uh, you know, that's part of the... It's an incredibly problem. important aspect as part of the, yeah, a stepping yeah. step. So that's the first part. So I wouldn't say it's either or. I wouldn't no. say that in this project we're looking at laws. I do think that the law is very important. Yes. And I think that the observation that laws are not implemented and that having a legal right doesn't translate into having the outcome that you want mm. or the output that you want all the time is sometimes um, overvalued by political scientists who say, right. because I think maybe they come to it, it's a question of expectations. If you mm. come to it and you say, oh, I expected having a legal right would solve the problem, mm. then you're very disappointed. Yeah, sure. And then you go away saying, oh, laws don't matter. Yeah. But that's an over, yes, that's an, yes, that yes. overvalues the, yeah, you, know, yeah, you come sure. to it from saying, what does law do? Mm. Law sets a normative standard. Yes. Law sets a minima. Yes. Yeah. Law gives you a re- course so as yep, like uh, sure. the, this um, our field work in um Africa is showing that you know women's organizations do a lot of work to um, connect women with their rights. Yes. So they're able to say you're being um, gypped because you're you're being ripped off because mm-hmm. they're taking uh, you know um, you know six five hundred dollars from you for something that should be six dollars mm-hmm. and they're saying they're registering your business but they're really not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so you're paying for something you're not even getting and you're paying. 10, you know, hundreds of times more than you should pay for that service. Um, and the law is the thing that is being misrepresented there. And so it's women's organizations that can tell you about that legal right that you have and help you get access to it. But none of that is possible if you don't have the legal right in the first place. I'm totally so, you know, so this, this is the point, right? Necessary but not sufficient. I think yes. we can see it easily in those yes. sort of, you know, broad terms. Yes, okay. absolutely. Right. I'm 
absolutely with you. So then I had this other thought. Could it possibly, is it possible, do you control for rates of female labor force participation or women's share of technical, managerial or professional roles or levels of urbanization, all the sorts of things Mm -hmm. that might be causing both feminist mobilization, because if you've got more women in the workforce, more likely to mobilize, network, etc., um, and those sorts of final outcomes. Uh, labor force participation, yes, although it depends on the thing because it can be quite um, present problems of endogeneity. Yes. So, um, but for things where it's not obviously going to be a problem, um, yes, labor force participation is a control variable okay. in our, many of our models. Um, depend. The real question is just whether they those um, control good data exists on the control side for all of our countries. Yes. So when you're talking about 120 countries. Um, you know, you start to lose uh, cases the more you're trying to use no, these for sure, data sets. For so sure. the question is, I mean, so yeah, I mean, we do have that in our models. What and about urbanization, level, level of urbanization? I don't think we've used urbanization as a level. The problem with doing all those kinds yes. of control variables is they're all so tightly connected, right? Yeah. Level of development, urbanization, um, democratization. Mm. I mean, you can put them all in, and we do, but if you put them in all at once, I mean, you're just not going to get anything meaningful, right? Because mm. everything's related to everything else. Yes, huge problems of course. With linearity. Um, and, and so you're not really, I mean, really you could do instrumental variables, but once you're at that point, you have to have a strong theoretical argument for what is it about urbanization that you think is mattering. Mm. And so since that's, you know, we can't have everything in the mm. model, so, and that's not my project. Mm. So if somebody wants to include urbanization, then yeah. it's on them to kind of come up with a strong theoretical no, model sure. about an instrument. Um, but everything, like GDP, for example, I mean, they're all closely connected to each other. GDP per capita, yes. or, um, you know, democratization, authoritarianism, um, you know, And of course, you know, more, more, if you have laws supporting women in employment, then you have more women doing well in the economy, then your GDP is likely to increase. It's right. multi-colonial right. narrative. Exactly. Saying, yeah. No, it's all, it's all related, and the question is how much? Is, okay. it, is it an analytic problem? Yeah, so, so that's a question. That's a question I have for you, reflecting mm-hmm. on social science broadly. I think... Many people, within, particularly within economics, will always be trying to look for natural experiments, always mm-hmm. trying to eliminate these possibilities. Mm-hmm. But um, I wonder, you know, it's a reality of social life that mm-hmm. everything reinforces each other, you have positive feedback loops. Do you think it's a problem? Do you think it's something that we should control, or can we just accept it and say feminist organisation is important? Well, I think that it really, this is where you're at the level of kind of specific analyses and specific mm, questions. Mm, mm. So I don't think you can ask some, answer some of these questions about social science method in the abstract. Right. right. I think if you want to know about whether a particular intervention has made a difference in a particular context, then you need an experimental design. Yes. But you may not be asking about a particular intervention. Uh-huh. Feminist movement is not a particular intervention. No. Right? It's a macro level yes. process. Yes. It's like saying, is democracy like this one municipal election or something, yes. right? I mean, like, right, it is absolutely. and it isn't, right? Yeah, I mean, of absolutely. course, municipal election is part of democracy, mm. but democracy is not equivalent no. to, say, mm. voter registration, mm. right? I mean, it's, there's, it's, a, it's a massive concept, importantly, and we want to know about it just because it's complicated. Nearly everything that's interesting is complicated mm. to measure and conceptualize. Mm. Yes, yes. So if we want to study things that are boring, it's really easy to measure and optimize. <laughs> yeah, if we want to sure. count things or whatever, yeah. that's pretty easy to do. But usually the more interesting and complicated concepts take a little more work to think about how you're going to conceptualize and operationalize them. So I guess I think that in general, you know, so the question about multiclinearity or endogeneity, I mean, again, it just sort of depends on the, like, I think you can solve sometimes those problems analytically for the particular 
project. And the question has to be, what's the biggest threat to validity in this analysis? And how do I, can I solve it? Can I find a fix? Can I lag my variables? Can I, which I often do. Yes. Um, can I, uh, you know, look for, I mean, so there, and that's kind of a, um, kind of a straightforward way of solving it, right? But there yes. are other things that you could do Two different types yeah. of methods. They involve trade-offs lots of times, right? So yeah. you're saying, okay, I can solve this problem and I create a different problem. Yes. So it's a question of what you want to do in your yeah. analysis, right? So, I mean, but it's not like, oh, that just means there's no right answer. It means the answer depends on what you're trying to do in that analysis, right? So there's, you know, it could be that, um, you know, you want to know, you, you're trying to look at something and you're not going to be able to include, you know, every measure of everything, right? Yes. But that's always the case, right, for every analysis of anything. I, I think that's so, such an important um, point that it's about trade-offs and it's about recognizing mm -hmm. what we prioritize and justifying mm -hmm. what we prioritize and recognizing that some things will have to be cut, yeah. yeah. And also it's a good argument for trying to use multiple methods and to mm -hmm. think about robustness and mm -hmm. thinking about, okay, it's not about one thing, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. It's like medical mm -hmm. uh, research, you don't do a single clinical intervention and then like think things are over, you have to, you, you feel more confident about findings that you find over and over again. So I think this is the same thing that we want to do in our individual studies is you don't just do one study and think, okay, I'm done with that, right? You're, you're trying to say, okay, well, let's see, I can look at it this way. I can look at it using this large global data set. I can also do field work. I can also um, do a meta-analysis. I can also look at this way of thinking about this. I can do text mining of newspapers. I can, you know, there's no reason not to throw the methodological toolkit at these questions. And yeah. one person doesn't have to do that. That. No, we can sure. all do yeah, it, yeah. and our um, and in the ideal case, right? Our, we would be able to talk to each other and accumulate um, some insight, um, and maybe argue about it, right? But hopefully, our body of work would accumulate into something. So I think that that's a better way to think about it than to just think, oh, I have this one study and I'm doing this one thing. You know, hopefully everybody will be working on these things yeah, together absolutely. and trying to understand them and we'll all learn from each other. Absolutely. Now, you mentioned the field work. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Because that's super exciting. You mentioned you're going to India. Yes, I have not gone yet. So, of course, that will also be mm. uh, an But the point, you're complementing this big cross-national yeah. data set yeah. with in-depth yeah. work in yeah. specific and countries. Summer Forrester, who's the postdoc on the yeah. project, has already done uh, qualitative field work in five countries. Wow. Amber Lasvardi, who's the graduate student on the project, has done field work in two different countries. So already there are seven field work in seven countries that's um, feeding into this, as and well as kind of, you know, uh, the sort of stuff that you bring as somebody who's been studying something for 20, 25 years. You know, I've done lots of interviews. I've been to India before to do interviews. So what's the aim of the field yeah. work? Tell me about how it complements the, the big uh, cross-national Well, I mean, set. really, it's to try to um, create, I think that that like language of internal validity mm. is a big part of this, to mm. say, two, two, there's two big parts of it. Yes. One big part is internal validity, right? So we have all these measures. We're going to go into the field. We're mm. going to see, do they... Are the things we're finding yeah. in that we would think we would find in this place if we looked at these upper-level measures, yes. are they mapping onto the things? So when we're mm -hmm. seeing the things that we've done to sort of, you know, say, code our countries as strong, yes. then when we go there on the ground, does that seem right? Uh -huh, like, does it uh -huh. seem correct? Does uh -huh. it seem like, does it have what my, one of my grad school advisors used to call it the interocular shock test, face validity? Does it make sense when you get there? Right, right. Looking around, okay. You know, so you want to look at it and, and there, I mean, one thing about field work, and I think this is important, and I don't know if people say this, but you never know what you're going to learn from field work. Absolutely, absolutely. So it's important not to go in with a blank slate because mm. you, you have to have some theoretically driven mm. um, things that you're doing. But one of the great things about field work is that you just never know what you're going to get. You just never know what you're going to get. You're always going to learn something that you couldn't even have thought of. You wouldn't even know to ask the question yes. without doing the field yes. work. 
So that's a really important thing that I think we're, we're definitely getting out of the work that we've done so far and that I hope to get more out of. Um, another thing, though, is to kind of have the data that allows us to connect um, our variables here to each other. So to say uh, feminist mobilization contributes mm. to economic empowerment. So like mm. one thing is that we found this relationship that we've been kind of puzzling about. Mm. Um, it looks like, and there's, this mm. is very complicated, mm. um, but it looks like there's this relationship between feminist mobilization and financial inclusion in terms of bank accounts. Right. right? So I'm thinking, what, what's the real connection yes. here, right? Like, yes. you know, if you go to, you go to, it's like feminists are protesting and you get a bank account. What, what's the connection? <laughs> right? and so I'm even wondering, you know, we have in mind, it's not the case. I mean, movements do agitate for better laws that allow mm. women to get access to bank accounts. So that could be a link, but what is mm. the nature of the yes. link? Well, already we're seeing a very strong relationship um, between these organizations that help women um, get connected to actually having bank accounts, right? So, I mean, it's actually not as uh, disparate as you might think. I mean, mm. it sounds a little like, what? But actually, these feminist organizations on the ground are really focused on trying to help women make ends meet. Right. And they're um, taking women who are in you know, abusive situations, mm. who are starving, who don't have any education, who can't, and they're connecting women in these extremely precarious situations with economic resources, including bank accounts. But it's not just bank accounts, right? Mm. It's broader than that. Um, it's making sure they have the money to do the things they do. It's helping them set up a small business. It's getting them a job. It's mm. whatever. But it's actually the meat of how a women's organization connects somebody to economic resources. Mm. That story is not something we'll ever get out of our large... No, sure. I mean, we can have theory, a theoretical account of how that's re related and it can be more or less persuasive but when we go onto the ground and we say wow this is exactly what is behind this so just to clarify that so i guess there would be two mechanisms of the change one would be advocacy women calling for yes. bank accounts yes and the other would be direct service provision and you're right. saying in this case it's the direct yeah. service and provision both right okay. so um well so for example um summer made this point today that you know it the feminist organizations are engaging in a wide range of activities. So yes, for example, for they're sure. trying to change the trade policies of their countries, right? Yeah. I mean, they're not just talking about bank accounts. Mm. But, um, so they're talking about trade policies. Mm -hmm. but the, and there are a wide variety of organizations, mm -hmm. and they're doing different things. But some of them, it's true, are involved in advocacy around policy. Some mm -hmm. of them are trying mm -hmm. to change things like foreign policy mm -hmm. that are, yeah. uh, or trade trading practices, yes. which are, it is policy, but it's mm -hmm. not exactly mm -hmm. what we're talking about when we're talking about law. Um, and then... Um, Others are involved in direct service provision. I mean, sometimes it's the same groups that are doing all these yeah, things, yeah, and sometimes sure. it's not. So, um, you know, you know, some of the really powerful um, insights that we've gotten are from these incredible or this incredible organizing that women are doing mm -hmm. at the grassroots mm -hmm. level to get women, um, some women, working to get other women what they need to help them escape abusive situations and the thing that one thing that has come strongly mm. out of the field work so far is that economic empowerment and freedom from violence are strongly are closely linked yes yeah yeah of course so we were saying okay we've we've talked about violence we'd mm. like to see if mm. some of these arguments apply mm. in the area of economic empowerment and when we're going to the grassroots movements they're like right you're talking about violence and yes. we're saying well what we wanted to know was about economic empowerment and they're like Right, we want to talk to you about violence. This is about violence. Mm. Yeah. So that's kind of been a really interesting part of this. So, Laurel, the big, my big takeaway is, and I don't think I've seen this before, constructing a huge cross-national data set and then doing supplementary, complementary, qualitative research to explore... The causal mechanisms. The causal mechanisms. The and so this is really, a, I yeah. mean... 
often we see people doing quant and qual in a single country, but doing that globally, doing that globally is kind of groundbreaking and amazing. And some people, some people's groundbreaking, some people's crazy. <laughs> no, I'm all for crazy. I'm all for crazy. Bring it on, especially when it's highlighting the power of yeah. women's movements. Yeah, yeah. Laura, well done. Thank you so much. This Thank has you, been Alice. a treat. I really appreciate it.